0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, we're happy to have Richard Fogarty on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, Race and War in France: Colonial Subjects in the French Army, 1914 to 1918. It's a very interesting book because it brings to light uh, the paradox of a republican imperial power. The French, of course, uh, were Republicans, not in the American sense, but in the more general European sense. In other words, they believed uh, that those who undertook all the duties of citizenship should receive citizenship. Yet, during World War I, they uh, drafted and impressed a terrific number of uh, their colonial subjects, uh, required them to fight and die for the country, and did not extend citizenship to them. Um, Richard does a terrific job of laying all this out and exploring it in some detail, he also does a terrific job of explaining the experiences of the indigenous troops during the Great War and how the uh, French uh, attempted to um, write their republican values with uh, what was really uh, their native racism. It's a terrific book, and I, I hope that you read it. And I hope that you enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, Richard. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm fine. How are you? Good. How is everything in Albany?
1: Uh, just fine. We're just getting started with the winter weather. So. Is that right?
0: Um, yeah. we have. I think we have 70 degrees here in Iowa today. It's it's quite remarkable. 70 degrees on Halloween. I'm very grateful uh, well, for that.
1: It's a little bit less than 70 here. I'll yeah, just say that. I
0: imagine. Well, let me tell our listeners that we have Richard Fogarty on the show today, and we'll be talking about his terrific new book, Race and War in France, Colonial Subjects in the French Army, 1914 to 1918, which is hot off the presses from John Hopkins University Press in Baltimore, in fact. Um, So if you would, Richard, why don't you begin by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself, that is, where you went to school and uh, where you grew up and where you went to school and how you became interested in history and that sort of thing.
1: Okay, sure. I I grew up, for the most part, in upstate New York, uh, near Rochester, New York, and I attended uh, SUNY Geneseo as mm-hmm. an undergraduate. Mm-hmm. Uh, after that, I was uh, I, I worked for a couple of years, but then went to the University of Georgia, where I received my master's degree,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and then I moved on to UC Santa Barbara
2: mm-hmm. in, in
1: California for mm-hmm. my PhD. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I've, I've, I've moved around quite a bit, and and now uh, I've taught uh, at a couple of different places, but have now ended up back in upstate New York at SUNY Albany. so
0: mm-hmm. full circle. How did you How did you originally become interested in history?
1: Well, I was uh, I, I was always interested as uh, as a child in history, but when I got to college, I thought that I needed also to make some money, so <laughs> I, I thought I, I double majored in economics and history. Uh-huh. And uh, by the time, uh, uh, by the time I'd done that for about three years, I realized that uh, I-, I was better at history than <laughs> <laughs> economics, and it was uh, probably a good idea to try to make a living at history instead. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, and I had some some really wonderful teachers, uh, uh, Charles Bailey, who really influenced me to to think about doing French history. He was a historian uh-huh. of the French Revolution. And um, then I went on to University of Georgia, where I studied with John Morrow, who works on the First World War, uh, in Germany, in fact, uh-huh. where he, he supervised my thesis, uh, my master's thesis on France, uh, in the period just before the First World War. Uh, so he was instrumental in sort of bringing me toward the 20th century. And then at uh, Santa Barbara, I studied with Jack Talbot and Ken Murray and uh, Mike Osborne, all of whom do mm-hmm. French history in, in the modern period, so yeah. that's that's sort of my my pedigree.
0: Yeah, I've been to um, UC Santa Barbara on a couple of occasions actually, and I always uh, wondered how anybody gets anything done there. Because.
1: Right, I know. <laughs> I, well, I often joke that uh, I probably would have, would speak six languages now if yeah. I'd gone somewhere else. It is hard to work, at least I found it hard to work when
0: you can see the ocean. Yeah, no, the that, window. Uh, yeah that's that's really what got me, is that you could just run out on the beach
1: at any given yeah. moment.
0: Yeah, I mean, as a, I don't know how anybody holds anybody's attention there. It's truly incredible. I can understand, you know, here in Iowa we have, or I suppose in Albany, you know, we have the winter where we kind of buckle down and, you know, put on all our winter clothes and sit in our study some study, but there, you don't really have to do that, but um, it, sounds right. like it, was, it sounds like it was it it sounds like was a terrific place to go to graduate school. Oh, um, it
1: really was. Yeah, but...
0: that's great. So, um, this was uh, the book that evolved out of your dissertation, is that correct? Yes, it is. Uh-huh, that's right. So, um, why don't we just begin a discussion of it. How did you land on this particular topic? Why French colonial subjects during the First World War?
1: Well, I was always interested in questions of race and racism. Uh, and, and when I was in graduate school, I was sort of, uh, like most graduate students, fishing around for a topic and came across uh, just a line in an article that said that France had used 500,000 troops from the colonies to fight in the First World War. And I thought, wow, I didn't know that. Uh, mm-hmm. I suppose maybe other people don't know that either. So I, I thought I'd look into it some more. And it, it, it's seemed to bring together to me uh, all the sort of uh, my, my main interests: race and racism, the history of war and and military institutions,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and also uh, colonial history. Mm-hmm. And the the, the real the, what really attracted me to it was that there was a sort of paradox at the heart of it: that uh, that it seemed as if France this is mythology was that France had used these troops because France was free of racial prejudice and was more committed to Republican ideals.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, yet at the same time, uh, you know that didn't jive too well with France's possession of a colonial empire mm-hmm. and things I knew about French racism. So I wanted to explore how france could get sort of both reputations as being both raceless and racist at the same time and this would be a good way to get into that
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah no i i see just your point i know that we in the united states or i'll speak for myself have this notion or stereotype that the french are very tolerant of racial differences um more so than americans i haven't in my own personal life uh seen that to be really true (laughs) but uh, we do have this notion of it and your book does a terrific job of of kind of explaining why that is and the paradoxical nature of the French uh, approach to race. Why don't we begin telling the story by um, asking you to go a little bit uh, out of the ken of the book itself and explain how uh, France got this empire.
1: Well, uh, that's a good question. France lost its uh, its original colonial empire to to Great Britain for the most part in, in the 18th century, and started out uh, sort of again almost from scratch in 1830 when uh, when France invaded Algeria. But it was really with the the onset of the so-called new imperialism of the late 19th century. When all of the uh, colonial, or excuse me, all of the European powers really get into, uh, in particular, carving up Africa
2: mm-hmm. and
1: and creating these large empires, that France, the, the French empire building really took off. Mm-hmm. And in fact, that coincides with the inauguration of France's Third Republic mm-hmm. in 1870, sort of another paradox that, that France's first uh, and longest lasting, most stable republican government builds its, its largest colonial empire. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so uh, by 1914, France uh, possessed large territories in West Africa, North Africa, Madagascar, Indochina, uh, and and had the second largest colonial empire in the world.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What, legally speaking, was the status of these colonial? I, I was going to call them subjects, uh, but I don't really know that they were subjects. What, what was their legal status within, the, um, within the Third Republic?
1: Well, they were um, they were colonial subjects, but the the the, the problem in, in sort of answering a question like that for the French Empire and, and in fact for other empires as well is that different colonies had different juridical uh, and political statuses mm-hmm. within the empire. So, mm-hmm. for instance, Tunisia and Morocco were protectorates, and so the, the colonial subjects there were, were both French colonial subjects and citizens. Of the nominal uh, head of state, who was the, either the Bey of Tunis or the Sultan uh, in Morocco. So, mm-hmm. um, so there, in in a sense, there was there's a, a great variety there. But the the overall status, if you can generalize, it, is that uh, uh, colonial subjects were just that; they were subjects and not citizens. They mm-hmm. did not have the rights of of French citizens but were subject to French law uh, and French political control.
0: Mm -hmm. How did uh, Republican thinkers square um, the imposition of the status of subjecthood on their um, colonial population with the sort of more general um, Republican notion of inclusive citizenship?
1: Well, you know that, of course, comes up uh, as a very acute question during the First World War when these men enter the army in great numbers and, and fight for France. And, and serving the army is, of course, one of the main duties of citizens. And so, uh, and, and that is usually in return for rights. And of course, that's not the case here. So uh, the, the way the the French squared this the, this. This apparent contradiction was to, to to try to either ignore it or to erase it, or in some ways to bring the the two positions into uh, to greater to, to consonance. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't that wasn't easy because as soon as you make foreign uh, subject citizens, then of course they can vote and and control their own destinies, and quite mm-hmm. often that means uh, exiting the empire. Mm-hmm. Or at least that, Fear. So, um, the the idea is that well these these people are, are colonial subjects, and the reason is because they're not ready to exercise the full mm-hmm. the, the full rights of citizens. They are in fact, in in many ways, children. And of course, behind that is is the power of racism that, of course, Africans are black and North Africans. Uh, they they would have said North Africans are brown, and in some cases they said North Africans were white, but but less civilized than Europeans. It, it is of course very complicated as any racist ideology is. But the 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 way in which they sort of reconciled that contradiction primarily was through pointing to race. Um, th- then again, that that is of course difficult because uh, because Republican ideology is supposed to be universal, so the, that it doesn't resolve the tension. But it, it, it sort of puts the question off. They they can argue that, well, these mm-hmm. subjects are, are not ready now, but with a, maybe a, a few centuries of French tutelage, they would be ready, in fact, to become citizens.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's what we're doing. So that's how they, they say, well, we are, in fact, there is no contradiction here. We are carrying out a Republican mission mm-hmm. even as we build an empire.
0: Mm-hmm. So their expectation was then that these colonial subjects would One day, be citizens.
1: Yeah, I mean uh, that's. uh, I I suppose if you pressed some uh, some French thinkers and and, and politicians about this, uh, people who thought about this question, they they would say yes, but they they would say that that day is very far off indeed. Others, of course, had their doubts uh, that 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 would ever come to pass. But uh, but yeah, and and the, the idea was that well they'll become citizens, but of course they won't. That doesn't mean the end of the empire because they won't want to leave the empire. There, there, there was a strong belief in the, the attractive power of French culture, uh-huh. uh, and that, so it, it wasn't necessarily a vision of the end of empire as much as it was a vision of mm-hmm. turning these colonial subjects into French people. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, that's a lot easier if you if you think of it more in terms of theory than reality. In, in other words, if you think, well, this is something that may happen far down the line.
0: Mm-hmm. So would you say that the, uh, you bring this up in the book, and I thought it was a good point, uh, would you say, I, in other words, I know the answer to this question, but I'd like you to say it um, to our listeners, the, 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 were these imperialists with a uh, clear conscience?
1: yeah absolutely and that's uh, that's something that, that that I mentioned a little bit in the beginning but but I'll come back to at the very end of the book that that they had a clear conscience now of course having a clear conscience and being innocent are too yeah. unbe or too mm. yes, they are, yeah. and and in this case uh, this is a good case of it um they had a clear conscience because they believed they'd resolved these these issues by uh, in, in coming as close as they thought was appropriate to being true to Republican ideals, but uh, at the same time, uh, you know, um, arguing that, well, these subjects are not ready for full citizenship. And so, yes, they, they many uh, had clear consciences,
2: to be sure, mm-hmm.
1: but as I said, that doesn't mean, of course, that, you know, well... Uh, I, I quote uh, Henri Boncheg, the the uh, uh, French colonial historian, who says, you know, they were they this of course blinded them to the evils they were committing, mm-hmm. which of course uh, uh, means that yes, they were committing evils. So. So yes, a clear conscience, but but certainly mm-hmm. uh, not guiltless. From
0: this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a very interesting and important point, and it's an important distinction you make because I think it's often the case that we look back on these people and we think, oh, you know how horrible they were. But I think from their perspective, they were trying to do something that was uh, generally good, and so and this motivated them actually to to build empire in this way. In other words, it wasn't just a pretext for empire. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: And I well I think that you know, that that it's uh one of the things that, that uh I, I talk about a statement that Alice Conklin, one of the, the finest historians of French colonialism there is, working today, she, she says that, you know, it's easy to contem- condemn colonialism excesses it's it's considerably harder to figure out exactly how it worked yeah and one of the ways it it worked was uh it, it, this the kind of thing that I'm trying to describe where it would, where people could have a good conscience a good republican conscience even
2: mm-hmm. in,
1: and, and 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 administer an empire
2: mm-hmm. and
1: so and and again that that I'm often reminded of this when I hear people either politicians or, um, uh, embarrassingly, historians accused of plagiarism who say, well, there was no intent to deceive. I didn't intend. Mm. You know, I, in, in other words, they, they had a clear conscience when they did it. So, yeah, right. of course, yeah. you know, intent, uh, that doesn't mean they're not guilty. So one yeah. of the things that, that I'm really careful, uh, at least I hope people recognize and I'm very careful, is this is not a somehow a sort of defense of uh, French imperialism or any kind of imperialism or an argument for a liberal style of imperialism mm-hmm. that is somehow better than others. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm just trying to understand exactly how it works.
0: Mm-hmm. You know? No, I think that point comes through quite clearly in, in the book, especially in the, in, the, in the last chapter, as you say, which I think is really terrific. And, and you point to these quotes, and they're wonderfully placed as well. I, I, really, I really, I read it last night and I really appreciated them quite a bit. Let's turn to the war itself. Uh, I'm a kind of fan of military history. Um, one thing I I, I would like to ask you: Is did did the um, did the French general staff? I don't even know if the French had a general staff. Did the French general staff have a plan to use these indigenous troops uh, prior to 1914 in a continental conflict?
1: Yeah, they, there there was a, a plan, and so much about the First World War was was unexpected. I mean, there there was certainly a plan to use them, but not a plan to use them on this scale because. The, the, the French high command, like many high commands, didn't think the war would turn out quite the way it did. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, as big and as long as mm-hmm. it was. So um, the, certainly there were uh, about ninety thousand troops, uh, indigenous troops. Um, in the French, they called them indigenous troops. Uh, the, the later, the French should know them
2: mm-hmm. whether
1: they were in France or not. They mm-hmm. called them troops uh, indigene or indigenous troops,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and, and so. Uh, That term covers uh, sort of all soldiers who fought in uh, the colonies. So anyway, there were uh, uh, several thousands, tens of thousands of these troops, and they came from the very earliest days, August of 1914, to fight in France. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were part of France's uh, overall force structure, and certainly uh, in the case of North Africa, they were the ones who were closest. But uh, North Africa, um, Algeria in particular, was uh, integrated into the French Empire both politically, administratively, and Mm militarily,
2: and troops...
1: Uh, both white and non-white troops, in the words, native troops to troop, troop North Africa, mm-hmm. were part of the French Plan 17, which was the, the, the plan to, um, uh, to, to wage war in 1914. Mm-hmm. So yes, they, they, they were expected to participate, uh, but not, not in the numbers, of course, that mm-hmm. they eventually did.
0: Mm-hmm. How how did the French levy them in the colonies? And were, there, were there standing military forces, and how were those military forces increased?
1: Well, yeah, there there were uh, standing military forces, and there there was uh, some of the things I talk about in the, the very beginning of the book, um, the, the chapter on recruitment called Reservoirs of Men, discusses this, where the, there were there there had been a, a, an, actually a fairly long history of using troops uh, from the colonies to fight within the colonies in the French army. And there were recruiting systems in place. In some cases, and again, there's a great variety in the different colonies. In some places, there was conscription, uh, and and not universal conscription, but a form of of the draft, in other words. There were also bonuses, uh, the French administrators exercised pressure on local elites to come up with quote volunteers to, to serve and, and of course they would then volunteer <laughs> people uh, mm-hmm. who, who they thought uh, should be in the French army and, and and that was their choice of course not the supposed volunteers. So there's a tremendous variety but they, they have to intensify all of these methods as the war goes on so conscription becomes extremely important in North Africa. Whereas in 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 Algeria and Tunisia, uh, but in Morocco, uh, for instance, all of the soldiers who fought were volunteers Mm -hmm. of one sort or another. So Uh once again, uh, there there's a variety of experiences there.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, Was there resistance to the draft or conscription in the colonies?
1: Yes, absolutely, Mm -hmm. and there there was there 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 was well there was and there 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 was less than you might expect. In fact. there was in West Africa a few fairly curious revolts, but as, as historians of those uh, of that period have, have pointed out, the revolts in some ways had a lot to do with issues that predated the war. So um, certainly conscription and uh, the, the pressure to produce volunteers intensified the to the, the revolt. And, and you have people resisting conscription and resisting uh, well, any sort of enrollment in the French Army in North Africa, as well. But in, in to a surprising degree, people cooperated, and I think that speaks to the, um, not necessarily to the enthusiasm of colonial populations, but to the enormous pressure that the colonial authorities were able to bring to bear on these populations.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. How did the, um, well, let me put the question a little bit differently. Was there an expectation among the colonial soldiers or those people that recruited them that they would benefit in terms of gaining some status within the empire or perhaps even citizenship? The reason I ask this question is that I've interviewed several people who um, have studied uh, America in the First World War and, you know, when they levied uh, African-American troops, they, they, they were uh, they, they, the African-American troops were... were were kind of given to know that their status would rise in some way. That perhaps this was a first step to, to a more general equality. Was there a similar sort of expectation among the um, among the indigenous troops?
1: Yeah, certainly among some of them. Uh, some of them would have wouldn't have thought very much about those issues because they frankly would have had other things to think about. Um, if pe- you know, if people with less education, less exposure, um, people from rural areas, and, and that
2: mm-hmm. sort of thing.
1: Certainly, educated uh, and, and assimilated colonial subjects and urban dwellers, people with, with greater contact with French administration, had usually uh, higher expectations of that. Um, now, this in some cases was just they drew sort of logical conclusions from French ideology, mm-hmm. and, and just it, it, you know it makes some sort of practical sense to mm-hmm. serve. But of course, there there must be some sort of pay back for mm-hmm. sort of things. Uh, the service but uh... on the other hand um there, there there were incentives and there were implications that this would that this would result in some, some concrete gains mm-hmm. however you know it, it, it's Quite often, it's the, the case that you have people saying, well, if we do this, then they will surely have to reward us. Mm-hmm. And that's not the same as, as you know, reacting to sort of concrete promises. And, and of course, citizenship later in the war becomes an incredibly difficult issue for the, the French authorities to answer. Mm-hmm. So they would, if, for reasons of ideological consistency, uh, like to offer citizenship to these troops. However, this carries the kinds of implications that you might imagine are, are dangerous to, to colonial rule and, and authority, and frankly those racial questions about inclusion in the nation that, that many authorities don't want to face. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. After the troops were uh, levied, and when they were uh, put on ships, I suppose, and uh, brought to France, how were they integrated into the French force structure? Were they in separate units, or were they... Were they were they blended with existing units?
1: Um, they were it, it, well. The, the French army is at this time separated into the, the metropolitan army uh, and the, the colonial army. And the the colonial army. This is why it's it's difficult to refer, refer to these troops as colonial troops. That's why I use the French term indigenous. Troops, because uh, because colonial troops actually meant anybody who served in the colonial army, so mm-hmm. whites and and non-whites as mm-hmm. well. And so they they served in um, they served usually in in units that were designated as uh, tihayir units. In other words, units exclusively from a certain colony. That usually meant also that they served with white officers and non-commissioned officers. So there was some mixing in that sense. And they often mix in with white troops uh in in larger units, so a couple of companies might form a ba- a battalion with a couple of other white companies or something mm-hmm. like that, as as they put it but um so so there was uh, some integration uh, depending on which le- level you you' are talking about there is there are a few exceptions to this some through administrative anomalies, some colonial... Uh, residents of the colonies actually have citizenship rights,
2: uh-huh. and
1: and even though, for instance, there are black West Africans, they serve in integrated they serve in in regular metropolitan army units
2: mm-hmm. and
1: not in these colonial units. Mm-hmm. I, I would say that it, it, that the, the the French army is more racially integrated by far than either the British or the American army mm-hmm. at this time. Um, in part for reasons of Republican ideology and in part for reasons of uh, of military necessity. Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm. Um, What uh, roles did the um, indigenous troops play within the French Army? And by that I mean, did they serve as uh, regular line infantry primarily or were they in support positions? Were they in artillery batteries? What sort of things did they do?
1: Well, that varied, and and this is where racial ideology and and racial stereotyping becomes very apparent. Troops from certain colonies were considered shock troops, they called them. They were considered particularly aggressive, uh, savage, great fighters, uh, perhaps uh, not possessing the kind of uh, intelligence or um, higher sort of sense of duty as white troops, but uh, particularly good fighters. So this is very true of West Africans, for instance, um, known to, to the French as Tifa or Senegalese troops. Uh, so West Africans served quite often as combat infantry. On the other hand, you have, uh, you, you have Indo-Chinese and Madagascan, Madagascan soldiers, most of whom served in support roles, and that was because the French racial ideas held these troops, the people from these Colonies to be less warlike, in some ways more feminine, less suited to modern warfare and the rigors of of modern uh, European combat. There were some exceptions, uh, but you can see that the dramatic differences in numbers of soldiers who served either as support troops or as as frontline infantry. Now, the the flip side of this is that that Madagascan and Indochinese troops were considered to be uh, more intelligent and in some ways more refined in West Africans so they ended up serving in more advanced support roles like serving as clerks and, mm-hmm. and, and, and that sort of communications and that sort of thing whereas West Africans were considered only good for for assault and combat
2: mm-hmm.
1: so so there's, there, there's a wide diversity there but it had a great deal to do with with the ideas about whether people from certain colonies, or even within certain colonies, were from groups known as warlike races or non-warlike races. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Where did these stereotypes come from?
1: Well, they, they have a number of origins. Some of them lie very deep back in, in the past in French and in European history, more broadly, understandings of, of, of white superiority and, and black inferiority. But also, they they stem from the experience of, of of the French in the colonies themselves. So there's some, there there are some paradoxes in this. However, the the, the French had a tremendous, tremendously difficult time conquering Madagascar, and in particular, uh, the interior part of of Madagascar. And yet, somehow, they came to the conclusion that Madagascans were not warlike, and that in fact the... People in the interior, particularly, not warlike. Mm-hmm. So you know, it, it, there are some real contradictions. And again, the, the real, uh, the one that would have the most serious consequences was in Indochinese. Chinese mm-hmm. in the Vietnam uh, in the Vietnam Wars. Later on, the, the, the French idea that the Chinese people are not warlike and, and unsuited to uh, to fighting Europeans people mm-hmm. was uh, sort of tragically wrong, at least. From the point of view of, of the French fighting the Indochinese, mm-hmm. so uh, so there's a, a good bit of diversity there as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Did anybody object to these classifications? Did they say, "No, you've got it all wrong"? In fact, the Indochinese are quite fit to be uh, yeah, they're, combat infantrymen.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, racial ideas, are, it, it, as a sort of general principle, I think racial ideas can be both complicated and, and entirely contradictory. Uh, and very logical, and, and I think that's just sort of the nature of, of uh, racist thinking in general. because a lot of it's based on emotion and, and that sort of thing. But there were the race ideas were not totally impervious to uh, to actual experience. So, for instance, Indochinese soldiers were were discovered to to have tremendous endurance and were considered to be to be much better in fact even than white troops at serving as truck drivers, mm-hmm. uh, driving supplies up to the front line, they were, uh, it, was, it was through experience they believed, they, they found out that Indo-Chinese soldiers could do better over without sleep and were easier on machinery mm-hmm. and all sorts of things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Madagascan troops ended up proving to be, uh, to be much more resistant to winter weather than anyone ever thought they would be and, and mm-hmm. much better at serving in the artillery. So there were some cases in which in which experience trumped these ideas, mm-hmm. but they were remarkably resilient. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you find by the end of the war, people making the same statements that they had made about different <laughs> races of people in the colonies from before the war, mm-hmm. and some of them are are um, well. Frankly, as, as long-headed as, as they were
0: when they first made them, mm-hmm. uh, and could be contradicted by experience. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, old habits die hard. Uh, yeah. the the um uh, 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 what was the experience of the uh, indigenous troops themselves in France? I'm always interested to hear uh, a, a little bit about you know what what did they think when they first saw France? What did they think when they saw the war? How did they come? How did they understand it?
1: Well, you know, one of the things that, that I spend a lot of time on in the book is the, the surprise they felt when they realized what people, uh, French people, who were not in the colonies could really be like. In other words, in the colonies, the color line was very strict, and there was, uh, it was hardly ever crossed, certainly, by, by whites um, in, in any sort of meaningful sense. In, other words, in any sense that would that would undermine their power and authority
2: uh-huh.
1: as as, um, as racial superiors and and in political control, but in France itself, the many colonial subjects encountered people who were much more open and, and thought much less about issues of race and and, and really uh, they were many colonel subjects were profoundly surprised at the treatment that they they received at the hands of French civilians. So French civilians. Quite often, treated them uh, with, with kindness and openness that they that they didn't
2: expect, uh,
1: and and this you know this wasn't universally the case to be sure, but it was it was often enough for for the soldiers themselves to remark on it. You see it in the censors' reports of their letters, and of course the one one of the chapters in the book covers uses well covers this subject in in, in greater detail with particular focus on the issue of of relationships.
0: Mm -hmm. relationships. Yeah, I was going to ask about that.
1: Yeah, sexual relationships across the color line. That there were a number of formal subjects who who either had casual sexual relationships um, or, in fact, profoundly important and and long-lasting relationships that that ended in marriage and, and children. And this was something that... Really astonished uh, them, uh, to be sure, but also the French authorities because Mm -hmm. they did not like the implications
2: of Mm -hmm. what it
1: might mean. And this is where um, you see one of the parallels with the American experience, uh, the African American experience in the First World War. This is one of the, the reasons that France gains a reputation as a colorblind society. Many African Americans come to France in the First World War and are, are astonished that nobody seems to, to, to really remark upon or that they're black, remark upon their color, or, or treat them any differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, one soldier writes home to his mother that these the French people don't bother with no color line business. The mm-hmm. only time I know I'm colored is when I look in, in the mirror. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that, I, I think, a number of former subjects had a similar experience as well at least sometimes. So they, they also encountered racism, there's, there's
0: no question about it. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, what, one sort of interesting moment in the book that I'd like you to elaborate on a little bit is that uh, the, the, the and, and I hope I, I'm remembering correctly, sexual mores, that is the relationship between the sexes, was actually quite, quite different in, in Muslim societies, especially in North African societies, than it was in France when they got there. And uh, it, it, again, if I remember correctly, the, the, the there was kind of a general impression among the um, indigenous troops that French women were um... well, rather more free.
1: Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. And and this is the, you can see one of the the, the pleasures of reading the censors' reports is that you can see their uh, their sort of dismay and shock about this this sort of thing because what what they uh, what they see is that these men are sort of generalizing about French women from their Experiences with prostitutes. Yes, <laughs> they yeah. you know need they, um, they a bunch of prostitutes and then they say, "Wow, French women are different." And, and of course, you know, of, of course, that's not it's not necessarily representative. Yeah. Uh, and, and so yeah, the, the, but but certainly, um, not just with prostitutes, the, these men encounter. Women, but really, I think the, the the most important aspect of this is that they encounter white women uh-huh. who are much more open to uh, to everything from just uh, talking to them and treating them as, as equal human beings, to of course becoming involved in, the, in them in, uh, in intimate relationships. Uh-huh. So, so yeah, they they encounter these these differences. Sometimes there 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 are some distortions at work, but sometimes it is the, the sort of workings of this uh this very real sense in France that race is not something that should matter.
2: Mm-hmm. You no know,
1: it's easier much easier to have that attitude if you live in France and not in the colonies of course. Mm-hmm. In the colonies the, the implications of crossing the color lines are are yes the, the color lines to undermine white superiority and, and that really is what colonial rule rests on.
0: Mhm. What um did the French authorities think about these transracial relationships?
1: Well, the great fear and the great anxiety was what what I just described, that what will happen, and this is, in fact, the fear of white American officers uh, when they see African Americans having these same sorts of experiences, that they will go back to the colonies with expectations that they should be treated equally, mm-hmm. that they can have relationships with white women, and, and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But so, so, and this is the effect is not really limited necessarily to the soldiers. The soldiers write home and tell their friends and family about these things.
2: And mm-hmm. then
1: this is also uh, perhaps even more disturbing, and that really one of the where you see the greatest anxiety is in uh, the postcards that these men send home.
2: Mm-hmm. These
1: could be postcards uh, bearing pictures of the men with their girlfriends or, or their wives
2: even mm-hmm.
1: uh, posing with nurses and that it in itself demonstrated uh, to uh, well it, to the satisfaction of the censors anyway that, that the color lines had been crossed in a very dangerous way but also they sent home uh, what the French called nudité or, or yeah. holographic mm-hmm. card, and this uh, you know I, this was clearly provoked the greatest anxiety on the part of the censors that well, um, they're going to they're, they're going to ridicule us. And as I, I quote George Orwell in, in the book, where uh, George Orwell says in his famous story "Shooting an Elephant," that that the the a white person's struggle in the colonies is, is one long struggle not to be laughed at. And
2: mm-hmm.
1: you are the superior race. You, you can't be laughed at. You can't be ridiculed. You can't be mm-hmm. in, in many ways made human. And mm-hmm. this is what the the censors fear. These postcards will do. Mm-hmm. So the the reaction was. To, to try to limit these relationships, to confiscate the postcards and so forth. But this is, again, where this, this sort of, that, that's the, the pull of racism. But there is the push of Republican ideology. So uh, I quote one censor as saying, well, you know, we'd really, for reasons of racial prestige and colonial uh, politics, we'd like to put a stop to this. But we can't really do that in every case because these men are, after all, uh, they're after all free, and 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 the women themselves are, are French
2: mm-hmm. um, and, and
1: have certain rights, even though of course their rights are are circumscribed mm-hmm. and not they're not full citizens either in this period. But you you see them sort of grappling with that issue: how do we uh, sort of remain true to our principles, which say that you know this kind of thing shouldn't matter? but then we have respectful racial and political considerations that uh, that are that are pulling the other way mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. yeah i should say by way of digression that um I've I've read a little bit about these nude postcards, and they were really a sensation when they were introduced. I believe in the 1880s, mm-hmm. and and there were just millions and millions of them produced and collected. That they were just a phenomenon; people could They were unstoppable. Everybody yeah. had them. Yeah. Yes,
1: exactly, and then, <laughs> and that is you know I mean you can see that even today. they're yeah. Trying to regulate internet pornography. It yeah. really is. Uh, uh, It really is is very difficult to do, and and in this case, you know, was even more so, and. However, you know there was a pretty sophisticated uh, uh censorship program in in place, and they did confiscate lots of these pictures and my my favorite i mean and of course these the soldiers would look for ways around this and my mm-hmm. favorite example of this is is one you chinese worker who says well they're he's aware of the censorship, so he he writes his friend he says well you know I'm, they're they're confiscating me, so I can't send you any more postcards." But I, I'll improvise and I'll draw you a picture, <laughs> uh, and, and so you know, it, yeah, you, you really can't put a stop to these things.
0: Yeah, no, they were they were really really quite something. Yeah, the um, let, let me ask another question uh, that, that, that I think I, I'm really glad you dealt with it because it it, it could slip between the cracks. How, how did the uh, French officers and the uh, French people in general communicate with these um, uh, colonial troops, especially the ones who couldn't speak French?
1: Yeah, and and that would that would pretty much include most of of these troops. Uh-huh. If they spoke any French, they, it wouldn't be very much or or, or, or very proper French. Um, many of these men were, were uneducated and, uh, and they had no access to any kind of literate culture at all, even in their own life. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, of course, many of these soldiers didn't, and this didn't speak French. And this poses a, a technical military problem. Communication is, of course, very important in the military. It means life or death, quite like, literally. So, so the the, the French had had a long experience in dealing with colonial subjects both inside and outside the army, and, and there were many French officers who spoke in, in di- various indigenous languages, but of course this war was, in, was incredibly lethal and and even more incredibly lethal to officers than anyone else. So soon they run out of officers who speak uh, a lot of these languages, and they're left with, uh, with, with a very difficult problem of, of communication. The the example that I talk about in the book that illustrates the solution to this most spectacularly is the ways in which the French army sought to teach a sort of French to West African soldiers. Mm -hmm. West African soldiers were considered the the most rustic, uh, the, the least intelligent, the least civilized. And so the idea was that, well, they can't learn a complicated and elevated language like French, and I have to point out, and I try to be very careful in pointing this out in the book, that there is a practical issue here. I mean, these officers are are not here really to teach these guys proper French, but to teach them enough French so that they can mm. they can do their job, yeah. which is to fight. But uh, on the other hand, you see the the kind of French that they that they try to teach them is this sort of pigeon French,
2: mm-hmm. which
1: dispenses with a lot of complicated grammar rules and complicated vocabulary and that sort of thing,
2: mm-hmm. which
1: indeed makes French easier to speak. Um, but they, you know, and they do this, they say, we're doing this because they can't, they can't acquire real French. Mm-hmm. They, they don't just talk about military expediency, in other words.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so... Um, they, they they teach them this French, and what the many West Africans realize is that in France, uh, I don't know if, if this is true, say, above any other country, but certainly uh, French people uh, then and now take language very seriously,
2: mm-hmm. and to
1: speak good French is the best ticket to acceptance in, in French culture. And what what many of these soldiers realize is that the one soldier put it: they, these this language that they're teaching us this, this sort of pidgin French is uh, words they've found to make asses out of out of the West Africans mm-hmm. and and this so language is really supposed to be in in colonial ideology and French national identity in general something that that integrates people into mm-hmm. the it's very important it's it's something that people should learn correctly and and be able to use competently and yet these soldiers were were offered a, a form of French that that was supposedly geared to their rustic intelligences but really kept them on the outside. So
2: mm-hmm.
1: language was supposed to be a tool of integration, but in fact turns out to be something of, of well one of the biggest barriers that they that they
0: faced. Mm-hmm. Yeah it's very interesting. So what um what impression did the um colonial troops relate to concerning the, the kind of nature of World War I, that is, combat itself. I mean, we know that uh, World War I shocked the Europeans, so I can only imagine that it shocked the colonial troops even more. What did they say about combat?
1: Yeah, um, they, they, I, the, the, the example I use in, in the book um, to talk about this, it, it's hard to get at, first of all. Uh, it, it's hard to get at that information because the censors' the reports... Don't often. Sometimes they include the original letters, but most of the time they include excerpts. And the censors are military officials, and they're in, interested in, in things that that are of sort of practical importance to them: morale, comments about food, uh, of course, uh, love and sex across the color line, all sorts of other issues. They're not as usually as concerned with what these soldiers thought about uh, combat, and uh, we have very. Few sources that that tell us there there are some uh, there's been some historians there have been some historians that have worked on oral histories with veterans and and that sort of thing so we have some ideas about this but I, I did come across one particularly lengthy report about Indochinese soldiers as they, uh, a um, a company of Indo Chinese soldiers right after they first went into combat mm-hmm. and at this point the 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 censors really were interested they wanted to see how this, what the effect had, <clears throat> and, of course, the, the, the Indochinese found it incredible. Uh, they, they found it unlike anything they could possibly have expected,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and, and as you point out, the you know, Europeans found this to be unexpected, but Europeans had some ideas of mechanization mm-hmm. and the industrial scale of, uh, of technology, and, and many of these foreign subjects would have certainly less Knowledge of that, less, less exposure, and so the shock, I think, is all the more, uh, all the greater to them. And I, I think often you see language failing these soldiers. They sort of try to describe uh, the experience, but they realize that it's, it's almost impossible to communicate. Mm-hmm. It. And the, my favorite, uh, the, my favorite quote from one of these soldiers, he just said simply, I've, "I've seen combat, or I've seen the war, and it's not pretty." Mm-hmm. And, and I think what he's saying—he's just trying to sort of convey there um, that, that it's so awful and so stupendous that, mm-hmm. that that words will pretty much fail to convey it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, uh, I, this is not in my book, uh, but in, in another book, uh, there was an Indian soldier who fought briefly on the Western Front for uh, for Britain, and he wrote home to a friend, and he said, this, "Don't don't think this is war." Um, what we have here is not war; it's the ending of the world. Mm-hmm. And I think that also sort of sums up the, the the incredible shock that many of these men felt when when they witnessed the really awful, stupendous nature
0: mm-hmm. of that on the Western Front. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I imagine that. that's right. What uh, what what opinion did the French officers have of the um, of the contribution of the colonial uh, soldiers? What 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 sort of uh, What was their sort of notion of their effectiveness in combat?
1: Well, again, they they viewed this through a prism of of Mm -hmm. racial stereotypes. So um, they they often saw kind of what they expected to see ahead of time. Uh, They expected... Senegalese troops or West African troops to be to to be aggressive, to be savage warriors and, and that sort of thing, but not to be particularly uh, suited to holding trenches in defensive warfare
2: uh-huh. because,
1: uh some of them argue well they, they don't have the well developed nervous systems and they can't take shelling like uh, like a European can. So uh, so, so you see that there is there is um uh, there are some, as I said before, there are some revelations that, where they say that, that it's really incredible. We've seen uh, some, some soldiers from some areas like Indochina and Madagascar surprise us with their suitability for for modern European combat. But most of the time, the argument was, well, they're simple. They may be aggressive and savage, but that, that needs to be channeled. And we need to do that with white officers. They're not suited for specialist positions. They're not suited to man machine guns. Uh, they they won't understand them. They won't use uh-huh. the equipment properly. And so, uh, and, and this, of course, as with any kind of preconceived stereotype or racial stereotype, this this is a self fulfilling pro- prophecy. Yeah. Right? They, they, these soldiers can't use machine guns because nobody ever trained them.
2: Mm-hmm. To use them. Mm-hmm. And
1: they don't train them because they don't think they'll be able to use them.
2: Uh-huh.
1: So uh, so. The soldiers ended up serving most often as simple foot soldiers, infantry soldiers, and not in the more specialized positions. They uh-huh. would have white soldiers and officers and non-commissioned officers to
0: fulfill those roles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see. So uh, after the um, conclusion of the war, when um, France was uh, victorious and um, it occupied... A, a, a sliver of western Germany, that is the Rhineland. Um, they sent these colonial troops uh, in as occupiers, and this caused something of a scandal. Maybe you can um, tell that very interesting story.
1: Yeah, uh, at, at, at the end of the war in 1918 and in 1919, France sent troops in to occupy the Rhineland in in Germany, and they sent the, the French army sent uh, quite a number of uh, of Troops from the colonies to 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 perform to the duty. There are a number of reasons for this. There have been a number of uh, people have offered a number of explanations for it, saying that they wanted to humiliate the Germans, and and this is the the German um, the German response to this. Even at the time, is that they're doing this to humiliate us, and um, you know, having these these uncivilized soldiers come and occupy our territory. But really, what what I found in in my study of this is that, in fact, it was not so much focused on Germans as it was focused on on the colonial troops and uh, the colonial subjects themselves uh-huh. in other words the the um, lesbiania the the great uh, it's a black man from West Africa who is actually a, a representative in the French parliament and thus a, a real symbol of republican assimilation. He becomes the, the, the uh, a sort of special commissar uh, to to the uh, to the French government dealing with with French troops, uh, colonial troops, and he argues that to Clemenceau, the leader of France, the prime minister, he says that well, we should use these troops because we need to give them a concrete idea of our of our victories here. Mm-hmm. And we send them home, we want them to, to go home having had a sense of French power. I mean, they've been in France for years now, watching watching france should prostrate before the germans and often and, and on the defensive and, and what we need to do is make the victory concrete to them so that when they go home they and the people they talk to will have a sense that france has, has triumphed mm-hmm. so so the, the, there's a political aspect but, uh, internal to france but what makes this story um, so well known is the, the incredible controversy that it touches off the germans claim that these troops are rampaging through the Rhineland and raping white women and, uh, and committing all sorts of terrible, uh, terrible actions against German civilians, and this gets picked up by people in Britain, in the United States, and in many countries around the world, and they see it as an example of the French, uh, the French propensity to introduce uh, introduce an uncivilized element into European European life. Mm-hmm whereas the French reaction to this is at first sort of bewilderment and then a kind of defensiveness, that, look, it really doesn't matter to us that these soldiers are not white. Right. We we send them there because uh, because they've earned the right to occupy the Rhineland. There are troops, and uh, and, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And, in fact, the, the the argument that the soldiers are committing rapes and all sorts of atrocities is spurious. Is Mm-hmm. And there are quite a number of relationships between white women and, and colonial subjects in the Rhineland, but those are the, of the same nature as they were in France.
0: Mm-hmm. mm mm-hmm. mm-hmm. What did the um, colonial troops think of Germany?
1: Well, uh, this is this is a, a bit of a problem, and, and again, this is where the census reports are so valuable. You can they, they sort of comment on these things. The, the the troops, when they went into Germany, part of the problem uh, for, from the French point of view was that Germany was undamaged. The <laughs> war had never gotten into Germany. Mm-hmm. So the, these troops had seen France beaten, uh, at least in, if not losing the war in a physical sense. In other words, they'd seen destroyed towns and, and many French people suffering and, and all sorts of... Of, of problems in France, and then they go to Germany and, and they comment in their letters. You should see this place. It's <laughs> perfect order here. It's clean. Uh-huh. A lot of sort of stereotypes that, that, that many people have about Germany. But uh, and and the Germans have this incredible. They're, they're masters of technology. Their their houses are bigger than and they're, they're much more. They're bigger than the houses in France. They 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 are wealthier than the French. And some of them also say, well, if if France defeated this great German power, it's only thanks to the help of, I think, as as one soldier puts it, 10,000 nations. Mm -hmm. Which is a bit of an exaggeration, but but, um, his point being that the United States, Great Britain, and and many of the other allies, in addition to colonial subjects from all parts of the empire, had to come just for France to be able to defeat Germany. Mm -hmm. So in some senses, this use of troops to occupy Germany had... Some un- unintended consequence. Uh
0: huh. Uh huh. It's very. It's really. I thought that was very interesting. You have some terrific quotes in the book uh, of just from these censors reports about what the colonial uh, troops said about Germany, and I have to kind of laugh out loud moments um, because they yeah. do. They, they are all our stereotypes about Germans. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. And, and, and like I said, this, the, you know, it's it's it, it, in some
1: senses Then yeah, there, there's a grain of truth, but then the other reality, and and this is what is getting get in the French censors to pull out their hair, is that they're, they're sort of misinterpreting the, the <clears throat> undamaged nature of Germany as uh-huh. a, the, the idea that, well, Germany, you know, so sort of barely lost or something, yeah. or, or yeah. you know, it was an accident that they yeah. lost, and in fact, uh, of course, mm-hmm. they were soundly defeated, mm-hmm. but just not damaged.
0: Yeah, I see That's what you mean. So, uh, just to conclude the story, what happens to the um, colonial troops after the war?
1: Well, um, they are demobilized as rapidly as the French can. I mean, um at first, they keep many of these troops on because they, they would rather demobilize white French soldiers first. And they, they, these the white French soldiers have been at war for four years, and they want to go home. And after all, uh, on the one hand, they're white, and on the other, they're, they're citizens and voters. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's a good idea to get them home to their families politically, and you can you, you don't need to worry about those things quite as much with colonial subjects. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then uh, you know once once the the pressure to occupy and and, uh, and and wind things down is over, these soldiers are demobilized as rapidly as the French can, can do so and sent back to their colonies uh, and and this is in in many cases not a, a very orderly uh, process and and many of the soldiers some of them don't want to go home because they' in fact married french women uh, or mm-hmm. they would like to stay for other reasons. Many of them thought, uh, as, as we talked about earlier, thought that maybe that they would gain greater rights or become French citizens or something of that nature. Mm-hmm. And, of course, uh, that the story I tell in the book of, of that effort to, bring, to to offer citizenship to the soldiers really is confounded by, uh, once again, racial racial stereotypes and, and uh, in particular, stereotypes about Islam, mm-hmm. and religious prejudices, that that really, uh, the the French say, well, they're not suited for French citizenship, and uh, and and so in fact, these soldiers don't gain the the rights mm-hmm. that, that many of them might have thought that they would have mm-hmm. at the beginning of all of this.
0: It. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's sort of a sad story in that way. Well, Richard. Yeah, uh, we've really taken up a lot of your time, and we uh, we appreciate it very much. Um, let me conclude the interview by asking our traditional uh, final question here on new books in history. What what are you working on now? What's your next project?
1: Sure, I am working on something that, that is sort of related, but that I could not go into as much detail about in the book um, and in the chapter about religion. I talk about uh, the, the, the role that Islam played as a sort of political football, I guess we would call it, between France and Germany. Mm-hmm. The Germans trying to entice uh, these soldiers to desert uh, to the German side and fight in the Ottoman army. Well, there, there in fact, is a, an enormous amount of archival material the, uh, on this, this group of men who were either taken prisoner or deserted to German lines. They mm-hmm. were put in a, a prison camp and were, uh, were the targets of propaganda. They built a mosque in this prison camp mm-hmm. and tried to get them to fight in the Ottoman army. Mm-hmm. They, many of these soldiers were uh, a little smarter than that and realized that that probably wasn't <laughs> any more fun than fighting for France, and mm-hmm. so they had to be forced into this battalion and sent into Mesopotamia to fight for the Turks, where many of them deserted. Mm-hmm. And uh, only about 100 of them survived and they made it back to to British lines. They deserted the Ottoman army to British lines, and then and then ended up back in France. So they had this incredible epic adventure. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it the odyssey that they went on, and and I want to use that story to tell uh, a, a sort of broader story about the role of Islam in. In, in German and French conceptions mm-hmm. of the war and conceptions of national identity, mm-hmm. so some things that are sort of related to what I did in, in this book, but that will uh, that, that will expand upon some of the ideas and go into greater detail about mm-hmm. other issues.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds terrific, and we hope that you come on the show when you're done with that. So we'll expect you in a few weeks. Then, no, I, uh, yeah, sure, <laughs> <Yeah. sure>. <laughs> <laughs> I know how long these things take. Well, this one, yeah, this one only uh, took uh, ten years. Yeah, exactly. Believe weeks, me, um, right exactly. So, well, Richard. Uh, um, we want to thank you very much for being on the show and uh, and uh, we, I will talk to you later, okay? Okay, thanks uh, a lot. Okay, take care now. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Richard Fogarty, author of Race and War in France, Colonial Subjects in the French Army, 1914 to 1918. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. Have a great week.